You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. That's good. Well, good morning, everybody. How we doing? Good, good. You sound great. That is three times you've been asked that question and three times that you have responded incredibly well. So I'm very proud of us in this moment. Uh, If you're a guest with us, my name is Michael Bailey. I am one of the pastors here at Midtown Fellowship, and I'm pumped to be with you guys today uh, as we do something a little bit different, okay? So for the past four weeks, we've been looking at some of the rationality behind what we believe as followers of Jesus, some of the rationality behind the Christian faith, talking about reasons that we believe in God, Uh, the logic behind believing in God, the reasons why we trust that God exists, uh, the reasons why we trust that the resurrection actually happened, reasons why we trust that the Bible is what we are supposed to have, and it is God's word, even all the way down to how do we as followers of Jesus handle doubt, because doubt is going to be a reality that we experience uh, as people just living in the 21st century here in America. And so we talked about all these things, but we knew going into this series that we were not going to be able to to talk about all of the things that we wanted to talk about. Uh, Also, all of the things that you probably wanted us to talk about when it comes to a series like this. So we decided from the outset that what we would do is we would let the final week of our Why I'm a Christian series be uh, a question and response or a question and answer time. So for the past four weeks, what we've been doing is we've been encouraging you to text in your questions uh, that have been raised by the content we've been talking through or questions that just have been sitting in the back of your mind. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to aim to answer those just that simply. This is something of a choose your own adventure gathering, if I may. All right. You guys have picked the content and now we're going to do what you wanted to do. So all that being said, let me give you a couple of caveats up front. Uh, First of all, this is not going to be a normal sermon. Uh, This is not going to be normally what we do, which you guys are probably well aware because I'm sitting in a chair. So you know it's casual, right? You got... This is what my wife has to deal with, okay? Like, this is, this is who I am. Love me for me, okay? Uh, obviously, it's not going to be a normal gathering. If you're a guest, uh, normally what we like to do is we normally like to just kind of preach straight through the Bible, just kind of give you what God's Word says. And so today is going to be a little bit different than that. We're going to be bouncing around a good bit, and we're going to be dealing with more topics than just straightforward, here's what the Bible is all about. Uh, secondly, there were a ton of questions sent in. Uh, I think across our family of churches, we had somewhere over 100 different questions that were submitted. Uh, And what we noticed about them, though, is that all of them sort of fell into about four or five different categories. And so my plan for our time today is to address the categories of questions instead of each question specifically, because otherwise we would just be here all day. And those of you who know me know that I'm already prone to being long-winded. And so I just feel like answering 100 questions would just be a bad look, you know? So we're going to take these things categorically. Uh, And third caveat is my aim is uh, to get through as many of these categories as possible while also giving adequate treatment to what's being asked. But again, that's easier said than done. So for, for, for these purposes, I just want you to know that I'm giving myself a time limit, all right? And all God's people said amen. There we go. I'm giving myself a time limit. I'm going to try to hit all of our categories. But if I cross my threshold, uh, we're just going to have to cut it short, okay? Uh, And so I know for certain that I'm at least going to hit three of our five or so categories, hopefully more, but we'll just have to see as we go. Does that sound okay? Everybody with me? Sweet. You excited? 
All right, that's what I'm talking about. All right, so the first question, and uh, by far the most popular question, so this is going to be the one that I spend the most amount of our time on, was this. Question number one, Genesis or Jurassic Park? Who's lying? <laughs> right? I mean, we got to pick, don't we? Who's, who's lying? Uh, so here, here are some of the questions that we had sent in. Uh, things like, uh, how does the Bible interact with the theory of evolution? Uh, what is the age of the earth? And when did humans come? Uh, does Midtown believe in the long day theory? How do we explain seeing light from stars if we do that are allegedly millions of years old if the earth is only a few thousand years old? Does the Bible infer that the Big Bang didn't happen? Or my personal favorite that got sent in was, no, seriously, dinosaurs? What do we do, right? Did they really exist? And these are, this is good stuff. Like these, I think these are really great questions because on the surface, it seems like the Bible makes some pretty bold claims that the scientific community doesn't want to easily co-sign and vice versa. It seems like the scientific community makes some claims that Christians don't want to easily co-sign. And so it raises the questions of, does being a Christian mean you have to turn off scientific study at the door? Do we just have to shut all of that out? Do you have to pick between trusting the Bible and trusting the scientific method? And at the heart behind all of these questions in this category, what we're really asking is how can, if at all, Christians or the Christian faith in general and science relate to one another, especially when it comes to the origins of life and humans specifically? So, obviously, there's an awful lot that we could talk about here, right? Tons of things we could go into. In general, though, this question rises from not really knowing what to do with the very first chapter of the Bible in Genesis 1. And so let's look together there for a moment. We're going to jump to Genesis chapter 1. It is literally the first page in your Bible. Uh, well, I mean, outside the preface and all that kind of stuff in the, you know, editors uh, or the translator's notes. Um, but first, first page in the Bible, let's look at Genesis chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1. And here's what it reads. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under, from, uh, under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And throughout the rest of the chapter, it just kind of keeps up with this, so forth and so on. It goes through the six days of creation. And you can see that here from the jump, there is a pattern to what is being said. There is a pattern or a rhythm to how this account is giving us its information. There are refrains and repeated statements, things like, and God said, let there be, and it was so, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the blank day. Immediately what this tells us is that we are dealing with something more than just an account of what happened. What we have here in the first chapter of the Bible is an ancient Mesopotamian poem, okay? This is part of what we talked about a few weeks ago when we were talking about the Bible, how the Bible is a library. It's not a single book, and it's not a textbook. It's a library full of different genres within it, and reading it rightly means reading it according to the genre it is written in. 
The problem is, is we aren't exactly sure how we're supposed to interpret this particular style of writing. Like, it's certainly a poem of sorts, but what are we supposed to do with it? Potentially, we're supposed to interpret it literally, like the exact words are exactly what happened. Potentially, we're supposed to interpret it more like we interpret all other forms of poetry, seeing it as more figurative and metaphorical language, communicating some deep truths, but not taking everything uh, literally. And we always want to use the rest of the Bible to interpret the Bible, but even doing that can often lead us to different conclusions about what we actually do with Genesis 1. However, the reason I bring this up is because I think one thing that understanding the nature of this literature does for us is that, is that it teaches us that we do not necessarily have to pit science and the Christian faith against each other. We don't necessarily have to make enemies out of those two things. That's not to say that Genesis 1 isn't necessarily literal, but it is to say that it's not by definition in conflict with scientific inquiry either. We have a tendency to pit Christianity against science. And I would just like to say that's actually a false dichotomy. That is not the position we have to take as believers in Jesus. Johannes uh, Kepler, a German mathematician and astronomer, described his own scientific study like this. He said of it that it was, he was simply thinking God's thoughts after him. And I happen to find that to be a profoundly helpful way to think about this discussion, that science, properly understood, is developing an understanding of the world God has made as God made it. It is thinking God's thoughts after him. It is discovering what God did and how God did it. So, for example, I have a friend who had a family disagreement not too long ago where his son uh, was asking where the wind came from. Uh, and his wife responded, well, well, God makes the wind. But he was sitting there thinking, um, boo, wind is caused by air flowing from high pressure to low pressure. Differences in atmospheric pressure is where wind comes from. And they had a little bit of a spat, right? <laughs> the truth is, is that both of these things are actually right. Both of these perspectives are correct. God makes the wind, and he does it by, create, by air flowing from high pressure to low pressure. These are not competing ideas. They don't have to be competing ideas as, though, as we often tend to treat them. And so right out the gate, here at the beginning of answering this question, I just want to say that Christians have nothing to fear when it comes to the sciences. We have nothing to fear when it comes to the science, sciences. Scientific inquiry, study, and theory are not the big bad boogeyman to the Christian faith. They're just not. Now, that's not to say that popular scientific thought or theory is always right. It's not what we're trying to say. That's not the case at all. Scientific consensus can and has changed, even within our lifetime as new discoveries are made. This is just the nature of the beast. What we think we know for certain today is one groundbreaking discovery away from changing tomorrow. But as Christians who believe that we are just thinking God's thoughts after him, we're actually uniquely equipped to hold these two things in tension. We actually have a very unique disposition to be able to hold these things in tension, to believe that God is God and we are steadily discovering how God did what he did. Now, all that being said, Genesis does posit some, we'll call them must-believes for Christians, okay? It posits some must-believes for us. And where the scientific community wants to reject these, we actually have to push back on the scientific community and say, hey, you've got it wrong here. We, we reject these theories. Here, here are the must-believes for us out of Genesis 1. The first is that God is the main agent in creation. God is the main agent in creation. 
Nature is not the deciding power in existence. God is. The central thesis to Genesis 1, whether it's supposed to be taken literally or not, is in the beginning, God. All right? In the beginning, God did this. Two, that people are God's special creation. That humanity is God's special creation. This is a must believe. Humans are different. We are different than the rest of creation. We are God's image bearers on earth. We have unique and special dignity and worth compared to the rest of creation. There is, in fact, a difference between you and your dog, okay? There is, or I'll say it a way that's probably going to offend you a little bit more. There is actually a difference between your child and your dog. Feel me? Everybody there? Okay, great, cool. Now that I've offended you, let's talk about number three. Uh, Third must believe is that God made it all good and sin is the ultimate problem. That everything when it was made was made good, but sin is actually the problem. These are must-believes. This is the groundwork that Genesis 1 is laying for us. And so with these three things in mind, when it comes to how Christians relate to the origins of life, what we can see is this opens the door for some theories, but it absolutely shuts it for others. And I'll walk you through, through the big ones, all right? The first, the first theory that we have to deal with would be naturalistic evolution, or what I'll call evolution without God, where evolution is the explanation for everything. For the Christian... This is one that the door is shut on, all right? This is one that the door is shut on. While, while it certainly has strengths, such as the observational evidence for common ancestry and fossil records that we have and biogeography and genetics, it outright denies the central claims of Genesis 1. In this view, God is not the main agent in creation, nor are people any different from the rest of creation, nor is anything for that matter sinful or truly good. It flies right in the face of Genesis 1. Now, it's, to be fair, these are also things that it can't actually prove scientifically that these things are true, but it's a position that it holds nonetheless. And so we talked about some of the inherent weaknesses in this view in week one of this series, and I'll just recap a couple for you here. But it's a, it's a position that is wrought with difficulty, such as the cosmological argument, how, how we got something from nothing as well as life from non-life is very much unexplained in this view. We are just expected to accept, well, it just happened. It just happened. There was nothing, and then, boom, something. And God definitely wasn't behind that, is what we're told to accept. Similarly, there's a problem here with what we know of basic cell theory, the well-established fact that cells come from pre-existing cells. Again, what we are expected to accept is, yes, cells come from pre-existing cells, except this one time when it didn't or when they didn't. That's actually an appeal to faith, and we've got to recognize that. That's actually an appeal to get us to believe something that we can't actually prove. Then there's the teleological argument that thinking that the origin of life came this way is like thinking that an explosion in an ink factory could inadvertently produce the collected works of Shakespeare, that everything is too finely tuned for us to actually think that this is all the result of chance. That's a problem, that we have the world that we have surely by luck, for lack of a better way of talking about it. And then, of course, there are the others that we mentioned that we don't have time to recount, the, the moral argument that we believe there is a right and a wrong, and that's virtually universally accepted, that there is right and there is wrong argument argument from desire and human consciousness and our trust in it, the reliability of things like math and human language, all of these are challenges to a purely naturalistic theory of origin. And to be fair, 
They aren't without some theories that attempt to answer them, but it's important to know that these are real significant challenges and weaknesses of this view nonetheless. And for Christians, the response is quite simple. The door is just closed here. It's just closed here because it rejects the central tenets of God being behind everything. We have to close the door. But does that mean we have to reject everything? Not necessarily. After this, we actually find ourselves with a lot of room to talk about how God did what he did. There are a variety of views that Christians can and do hold, each with certain strengths and each with certain weaknesses. And so I'll walk you through these next three. And as a side note, if I don't represent your view as well as you would like me to, please forgive me as God in Christ has forgiven you. Okay? <laughs> Great. Cool. Uh, so the second option that we have is evolutionary creation, or what some would call theistic evolution. And this is the, the, the notion that posits that God guided the process of evolution, that God is ultimately the creator, and the means by which he created was the process of evolution. So like we see, in Psalm, uh, uh, see the psalmist say in, 139, in Psalm 139, 13, he says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. We know that the psalmist was not saying that he hadn't developed in perfectly normal biological ways, but that this is a figurative way of saying that God instituted and guided the biological process of human formation in his mother's womb. So similarly, when we're told that God formed Adam from the dust of the ground in Genesis 2-7, the author might be speaking figuratively in the same way, meaning that God brought man into being through the normal biological process. The strengths of this view are that, again, the observational evidence seemingly pointing to common ancestry, fossil record, biogeography, genetics. It also solves the weaknesses mentioned above in naturalistic ev evolution, that God is the great cause. God is the fine-tuner. God is the one who writes his laws on our hearts and our minds and so forth and so on. But there are some questions here that are difficult to square with particular parts of the Bible. So, for example, when exactly did Adam and Eve appear? Adam and Eve are, to some extent, our problem here because there are parts of the Bible that seem to treat Adam and Eve like they were historical people. And if God guided the process of evolution, then at what point did Adam and Eve come about and in what sense were they actually the first humans? In what sense are Adam and Eve in God's image is another issue. In what sense are Adam and Eve created uniquely in God's image when there, when there are other hominids that have come and gone before them? Is Homo sapien the only one true human made in God's image? Or are there others? What does that mean? What do we do there? What does it mean? This is another one. What does it mean that sin brought death? Is that simply a spiritual reality? And that death existed in physical forms or in other ways outside of that? The process of evolution necessitates death. Now, to be fair, no matter what, we know that, we, that before the fall, we have animals that are eating plants. So before sin enters the world in Genesis 3, so death on some level, at least to plant life, was in fact happening already. But the question still holds, right? Like it still holds. What do we do with this? But that's an option. Next would be old earth creationism, what's called old earth creationism. That God created the world as spelled out in the literal account of Genesis 1 and 2, and it's currently 4.5 billion years old. And there are a couple of ways that this gets explained. Uh, first is that potentially there's a long space of time between God's initial creation of the earth in verse 1 and the six days of particular creation in the rest of the chapter. This is sometimes called gap theory. Kind of like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then a long, long pregnant pause to everything else. It's kind of how this, this goes. Others who hold this would argue that in Genesis 1, the Hebrew term for days is 
aeons. Uh, and one way of rendering that word day is also epochs or ages. So it's plausible that the seven days actually represent seven stages or seven eras of creation. In other words, that the days of Genesis 1 are extremely long ages of time, which would potentially overlap with a God, uh, God-guided evolution, potentially. The strength of this are that it agrees with the current scientific estimate of the earth, that it's around 4.5 billion years old. It agrees that that's correct. And it explains how the Bible is consistent with the aging and some of the other data that we, data that we see. Uh, weaknesses, though, uh, with this, weaknesses for the gap theory are fossils like dinosaurs predating humans. How does this work? With the day-age theory, photosynthesis is actually a really big challenge here. Like, I don't know if you noticed but what we read earlier, but in Genesis, day, uh, excuse me, in Genesis 1, day 3 is where vegetation is created. The sun is created on day 4. If those are long periods of time and not literal days, it would mean that there's an entire era of history where plants did not live by the process of photosynthesis. Now, look, I believe all things are possible with God, but we know that that's not how plants normally work. So it's a challenge. It's a problem. Then there's young earth creationism. Uh, it's the most literal view of Genesis chapter 1, literally seven days of creation, period. The earth is only thousands of years old, though it may have a quote-unquote appearance of age. The strength of this argument, and there are some, is the adulthood of Adam and Eve. Like, this is solid evidence for this position. The original creation was created with an appearance of age. God creates Adam and Eve as adults. He doesn't make them babies. He creates mature trees and plants and animals. If you showed up the day after Adam and Eve were created, they would have been adults. But if you asked them how old were they, they would say, well, I'm two days old. That's what they would say, Right? These, the trees that were created with an appearance of age, the rocks were created with an appearance of age. The flood in Genesis 7 actually plays a big role in this position. It would have had profound effects on fossil records and our dating systems, giving the appearance of age to the world around us. Additionally, this view holds that humans and dinos lived at the same time, and I consider that to be a strength because that sounds awesome. <laughs> All right? Sounds really great. However, I think the weaknesses of this position are also pretty evident. Like, the, a lot of the observable data we have seems to contradict it. You know, there's the usual suspects, the common ancestry we seem to share with living things, fossil records, biogeography, and genetic data, but more specifically, things like starlight. We have to account for this. For example, the Andromeda galaxy is 2.5 million light years away. Therefore, the light from it that we see right now is 2.5 million years old. If creation is only thousands of years old, then how are we seeing light that is actually that old? This requires an explanation for the appearance of dinosaurs, uh, for the appearance that dinosaurs existed long before people. Did God create these fossils already placed in the dirt? I mean, that seems a little strange, right? Potentially the flood in Genesis 7 accounts for this, but it's still something that we have to combat. And then there are even biblical difficulties. For example, if we, were stri if, if we are strictly literal about the Genesis 1 text, how are there nights and days before the sun, Right? How are nights and days before the sun? Nights and days are day one, and the sun is day four. Some problems. So there you go. I mean, and here's the deal. Out of those final three, faithful Christians can hold any of them. There are arguments to be made for all three. And all three, 
might be true, right? Like we're, we're discovering these things as we go. But if you want to do a little bit more of a deep dive, there's a book called The Four Views on Creation, Evolution, and Intelligent Design. It's edited by a guy named J.B. Stump. This is a great resource for you if you want to dive into more of the particulars here. Now, look, I get this. That is probably more info than you wanted regarding this question, okay? Uh, and this is the last thing I'll say on it. Uh, this is really what I would consider an in-house debate for us as believers. A proper view of creation doesn't save you, all right? Jesus saves you. If you are not a Christian, this is not where you need to start. In fact, this is not even the craziest thing we believe, okay? You need to start with the resurrection. That's where you need to begin. You need to start with Jesus, and then you can work out the rest. Our faith doesn't hang on what we believe about creation. Our faith hangs on what we believe about Jesus, that he is alive, that that is the historical fact that matters. And so that's where you've got to begin. You can go back and listen to week two in our series if you want to get there. Uh, And if you are a believer, listen, you have to know that this is ultimately an open-handed issue. Our church doesn't take an official stance on this because we think this is open-handed. We can all have opinions about it. And here's what I would encourage you with. I would encourage you as you read the Bible to develop a formed, biblically faithful position. Because the Bible is going to tell us that we need to be prepared to give a defense when someone asks about our faith. And that's a biggie. So my encouragement to you is research it. Be informed. Weigh it out. Come to a conclusion. But have an open hand about it. And we can sort it out as brothers and sisters over a pint. All right? Good. Cool. So moving on. That's question number one. We had a bunch of questions come in that went something like this. What about people who have never had the chance to hear about Jesus? Like if they live in a remote part of the world, what what happens to them? What happens to infants who die young? What about people with disabilities or severe mental handicaps who don't have the mental faculties to place faith in Jesus? What does God do with them? So our second question is, is what happens to people who don't hear about Jesus? What happens to people who don't hear about Jesus? The general flow of thought with this question goes something like this. It looks at passages like Romans 10, which says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have, not, whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So Paul's chain of logic here seems pretty straightforward. The only way to be saved is to call on Christ's name. The only way to call on Christ's name is to believe the gospel. The only way to believe the gospel is to hear the gospel. And the only way to hear the gospel is to be told the gospel. So this person is asking, if these things are true, uh, what about people who for one reason or another never have the opportunity to hear it? Perhaps due to how and when and where they were born. Is this fair? Personally, I think this is a really, really good question and a really, really difficult one. Not because of the intellectual or the theological issues that it raises, but because of the emotion behind it. This is a tough thing for us to deal with. These questions are rooted in love and care for the disadvantaged and a desire for fairness and understanding. And I think that's really, really admirable for those of us who are asking it. And so I think it's wisest to actually respond to this one in a couple of different ways. So let me start here. Let me start by just quickly addressing, why do people go to hell in the first place? Why do people receive God's judgment in the first place? To answer this, we'll look at a passage that we've referenced a lot in this series. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. This is what Paul writes. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and creeping things. All right, here's what this passage tells us. No one receives God's judgment because they haven't had the chance to hear about Jesus. No one goes to hell because they haven't heard about Jesus. And that is really, really important. Humans receive God's judgment because they reject God. We receive God's judgment because we reject God. We choose to define right and wrong for ourselves. Or in the language of the Bible, we choose to do what is right in our own eyes over and above what God commands. We choose to treat things that aren't God as though they were God, whether that be, be idols crafted to resemble created things like animals or other human beings in non-Western portions of the world, or just by how we do it, by devoting our lives to the little gods of money and success and comfort and kids. This is what the Bible would call idolatry and sin. And the Bible is clear. We have enough evidence to know God is God by what's around us. You can go back and check week one out in the series where we made this case so that none of us are actually without excuse. And at this point, I think it's important to recognize some assumptions that lie at the base of how this question is sometimes asked, especially when it's posed about a tribesman or someone living in a far-off land or in a jungle. There is this latent assumption built into it that perhaps someone somewhere might be inherently good and have a Godward disposition and simply be ignorant. And the question becomes, well, obviously this tribesman means well. He just didn't know. Will God hold him accountable for his ignorance? The problem is, is that this assumption violates the reality of the human condition, and it fails to see sin as God, in fact, sees sin. It posits that humanity is basically good, and that sin is akin to little foolish mistakes instead of an affront to a holy king. It's a very white, western way of thinking about humanity. That, humanity, that humans are merely victims of their own context and would make the right decisions if they had access, access to the right opportunities and education. Very white and Western, very. But the Bible and really all of human uh, history actually tells us that this is a fantasy. Like in Romans 3, where uh, Paul is quoting the psalm, says, there is no one who does good. There is no one who seeks after God. Would God condemn an innocent tri tribesman? Absolutely not. The problem is, is there are simply no innocent tribesmen. We all have the knowledge that we need to know that God is God and we are not, and we choose to reject it for ourselves. That's why we're held to account. Now, there are some who will argue that if the tribesman knows he is unrighteous, unrighteous and that he needs God to save him, that he trusts in God's mercy for his own righteousness over himself for salvation, that even though he has no specific knowledge of Jesus like the tax collector in Luke 18 or certain individuals from the Old Testament, then God will save them based on their faith via the limited revelation they've been given. And there, there is an argument to be made there, but the Bible presents a lot of problems with that view the least of which is not Romans 10, which we read earlier. And then there's the account of Cornelius in Acts 10, who was as devout a guy who didn't specifically know Jesus could possibly be. 
And yet, in order to save him, the Spirit had to come to him in a dream and tell him to be on the lookout for someone to tell him about Jesus. The Bible's pretty clear that specific knowledge of Jesus seems pretty integral to this whole thing. Now, obviously, that begs the question, all right, well, what about babies and the mentally handicapped? What do we do here? And it gets a little bit trickier because unlike the tribesmen, this category of person can't consciously suppress the truth about anything, right? Like, they don't possess that ability. So what does God do in these circumstances? Now, Christian opinion varies, uh, varies greatly depending on who you're talking to. And the truth is, is we don't entirely know because the Bible doesn't explicitly talk about this like it does for those who sin consciously. But I'll give you what I think the scriptures most clearly teach and where I actually land on this. So I think that we can most likely infer from the scriptures that God imparts the saving grace of Jesus to children who die young and the mentally handicapped apart from their ability to have conscious faith in Jesus. And here's why. We have ample evidence from the scriptures that the spirit can and does touch children in the womb. We have examples of this like David and John the Baptist and even Jesus himself. And that Jesus even teaches that the kingdom in Mark 10 belongs to children which was a very radical thing for him to say in this society, this society that values children that valued children far less than we do in our own. And I know this opens up a whole other can of worms and we won't go into all the details of it, but there's evidence that children from believing households were conceptually in a different position than those outside the fold. According to Ephesians 6.1, they have access to the covenant promises. And in 1 Corinthians 7.14, that they are made holy by a believing parent. And then there's 2 Samuel 12, 23, when David's son dies, he says, I will go to be with him. Now, this certainly could mean that all David is saying is, I will die too. But the very next verse we read says, then David comforted his wife. I think it's more likely that verse 23 was a comfort to David and Bathsheba because David knew he would see his child again in the next life. The juxtaposition of comfort makes less sense if David is simply assured that he will join his son in the ground one day. Lastly, I think the clear pattern of Scripture over and over, actually, I don't think, the clear pattern of Scripture over and over and over again is that people are judged on the basis of sins committed voluntarily and consciously in the body. So places like 2 Corinthians 5.10 and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 and Revelation 20, 11 through 12. In other words, the pattern is that judgment is always based on conscious rejection of divine revelation, whether that be in creation or conscience or Christ and willful disobedience. There is no explicit account in the Bible of judgment based on any other grounds. And simply, infants and the mentally disabled are not capable of either, so neither are they condemned. And I think this most reasonably teaches what the scriptures actually uh, expose here. But underneath all of this, this is what I would say, we're actually asking something else. There's actually a question behind this question. What we're really asking is, is God just? Can I actually trust that God is going to do the right thing? And the answer to that is yes. Yes, even if we can't know for certain what happens to those who can't hear the gospel, we can trust that God will do what is right. And the cross is all the proof we need to discern this. 
Again, Romans tells us in Romans 3.26 that the work of Jesus on the cross was to show God's righteousness, or you could say his goodness and his trustworthiness, to do the right thing by being, quote, the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That through Christ, God upholds his justice by giving sin what it deserves, condemnation, but also upholds his goodness and compassion by extending grace to those who should have been condemned. The cross tells us that ultimately there is no one more just and simultaneously no one more compassionate than God himself. No one, more stand, no one who more stands up for what is right and no one who more understands and cares about the plight of every single human being other than God. And it tells us that he is more than a God who knows these things, but he is a God who acted on these things. So even if we don't theoretically know for certain what might happen to those in question, we can certainly trust him with it. We can trust the wisdom of an unfathomably good and merciful God. And you might think that that sounds like a cop-out, but I would submit that it's not. It's simply the posture of humility that we take as believers that it is not our place to subject the creator to our finite and fallen notions of fairness. In fact, it could be argued that his grace itself is not fair. But our task is to take him at his word and to trust his heart. As Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, his ways are higher and different than ours. Or Psalm 119, 68, he needs no counselor for he is good and does good. Because we know that the cross is the summit of his wisdom and the intersection of his justice and love. So that's how I would respond to question two. All right, what time is it? Oh, we're not doing question three. Sorry about that. Uh, so here was question three. The question, question three was going to be, uh, does, does God condone slavery? Uh, short answer, no. <laughs> God does not condone slavery. And there's a lot of reasons why we believe this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put my manuscript online on the sermon page. You can go check out all the good things I was going to say instead of us unpacking them here. Everybody cool with that? Sweet. All right, we'll jump down to our last one, and this is where we'll end. Uh, last question, and then this is a goodie too. What are good ways to start the dialogue about these things with our friends? So we had a bunch of questions come in that were just like, hey, I care about my friends who don't know Jesus. I care about my friends who, aren't, who think differently than me. How can I begin to engage them on, on these things? How can we have conversations about this? Honestly, I'm going to try to keep this really simple. Be a real friend. Be a real friend. And what I mean by that is talk to them and ask questions. Don't try to go in and make this an argument. Don't try to go in and make this about, like, I'm going to prove you wrong on everything you believe. But actually seek to understand the other human being who sits across the table from you. Ask questions and ask follow-up questions. Ask them what they think about these things and then follow up with why. Not looking for necessarily for an interjection to defeat them in the argument, but just to understand who they are and why they've landed where they've landed and then share with them where you've landed. For some reason, I've noticed that many Christians find the idea that asking questions is like being too nosy. And I think that comes from fear of being like that guy or that girl that's like really pushy with their faith. And so I'd say two things to that. Number one, if Jesus is alive, like if the resurrection really did happen, then, then the fear of being pushy about Jesus really says more about our own fear of man, or let me say it another way, our own worship of what other people think about us, 
than it does anything else. Because if Jesus is who he said he is and has done what the scriptures say he has done, man, I would hate for somebody to come into judgment day to have to look us in the eye and say, why didn't you tell me? Why, why weren't you a little more pushy? I, I needed you to actually be pushy. You're, why did you not let me know? So we can feel the freedom to be a little bit pushy, but I'll put that with a caveat. The only way that you actually become that guy or that girl is if you're not asking questions to listen, but to challenge. That's the only way. No one likes to be put on the spot, and, and the reality is, is that most people like to discuss the real things that really matter to human existence in environments where they feel like the other person is coming to them as an equal who really wants to understand where they're at. Does that make sense? You tracking with me on that? So I have, I have a friend who does this really, really well. He's a guy who just, he reads a lot, and he listens to a lot of sermons, and here's all he does. He just talks with others about what he's learning and asks them what they think. So he'll be like, listen, I was reading a book the other day, and this guy said that the, chance, uh, that the thought of believing that, all, that this world that we live in is all the result of chance is a little bit like be- believing that somebody blew up a metal shop and out popped a Rolex. You know, like it just doesn't make sense. Everything's so finely tuned. I, man, that really messed with my brain. What do you think about that? The friend would share, and then he would just say, how did you land there? How did you get there? And the dialogue begins. And he's not afraid to admit what he doesn't know. If the person he's talking to is just like raises an argument or raises a thought that's like really profound and he doesn't have a response for it, he's like, man, he's just honest. Man, I hadn't thought about that. You know what? I'm going to do a little bit more digging and see what's behind that. And get this. He actually does it. He doesn't just let it be the thing that he says, but he actually goes and looks into it so that he can come back and have a conversation, uh, have the conversation further. I mean, it's kind of not rocket science. We just have to learn how to be friends to not be judgy, but to just genuinely want to understand where people are coming from and go. So it's really that easy. Be a friend. Ask questions. Ask follow-up questions. And don't act like a know-it-all. With that being said, two, two other things I would encourage us with. The first comes from 1 Peter 3, verses 14 and 16. It says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter's words here are real clear. He's like, listen, be able to make a defense for your hope, and don't be weird about it. Don't be, uh, you know, don't be uh, ungentle. Don't be disrespectful, but know why you believe what you believe and be ready to share that when the opportunity comes. So the best thing you can do in this regard is to know why you believe what you do. To not just kind of go through life blindly accepting these things, but really dig down into the reasons why you have the faith that you have. To think about it and do the research for yourself and know your conclusions. Because here's, here's the reality. Conversations like this are probably not going to be scheduled, okay? Like you're not going to go up to a friend or not going to have a friend who says, hey, you know, at 2 p.m., let's get together and chat about the cosmological argument. It's just not going to happen, Right? These things are going to be happen. These things are going to happen more organically, and we need to be ready by knowing why we believe what we believe. And this is the big reason why we wanted to do this series for you, to say, hey, you're not crazy for believing this stuff. You don't have to concede the intellectual high ground to your skeptical friends or family. 
there's reasonable defense for why you believe what you believe. And you can stand on faith and knowledge and reason together. And so we did this because we wanted to bolster your faith, to stand strong in love with a good conscience and good deeds, a kind heart, to ask a lot of questions with our friends, but to stand strong in what God has said. And then the last thing is what, is what Jesus says in John six forty four, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And this is just an important caveat for us to know in, in this question, that you can't will anyone to Jesus. You are called to point people to him, and that's it. God is actually the one that draws them in. This is the reality that we have to deal with. And some of you know this well because you've got friends that you've already talked to about these things until you're blue in the face, and then it's still nothing. But people coming to faith in Christ takes the spirit of Christ, drawing them in and flipping the switch. And no amount of arguing or reasoning is ultimately going to make a person trust and follow Jesus of Nazareth. And we just have to know that. At best, what we are doing is putting kindling around their hearts, and we're praying that the Holy Spirit lights that fire up. And with that, let me just say, look, if you're here and you're still wrestling with all of this stuff, I just want you to know, you are so welcome here. Like, we love that you're investigating all this, and we hope that we can be a help in the midst of that process. But just know, this is what we're actually praying for you. We want for the Holy Spirit to turn that switch on, for, for the Holy Spirit to get a hold of your heart and help you finally realize, man, Jesus is the truth, he is the way, and he is the life. Because at the end of the day, for us, it's all about Jesus. We believe that he really is who he said he is, and he has really done what the scriptures have, what say he has done. He is our great savior, and we firmly believe that he will be that for you as well. All right, that's our Q&A. Let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll get out of here. God, I thank you. Uh, I thank you so much for time together as a church family. I thank you for all the words that we sang today. Uh, I was particularly blessed by that time, uh, just being reminded of who you are and what you've done for us through Jesus. I thank you for the great truth of the gospel, uh, that you are a God who shows unending mercy and grace to us, uh, that you have accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. And so just just so grateful uh, for that. God, as we, um, as we leave this space as your church today, uh, God, I pray that you would help us to really think well about why we believe what we believe that you would uh, prevent us from just kind of flying blind, so to speak, just kind of going on and not really putting much thought or much defense into why we believe so, such that we would be people who, when we're confronted with these things, just feel at a loss. But no, God, I pray that you would strengthen us and help us to be a people who, when, when our skeptical friends ask questions, when the doubts of our culture assail us, that you would help us to be a people who are able to stand firm because we know the truth. We know what you've done. We know what's real, and we have reasons to back it up, uh, and we're able to stand there. And so help us with that. Uh, help us to pursue these things well, but most importantly, God, I pray that you would help us to pursue you well, that you would draw us further, further into your heart. Thank you for your love and your mercy to us, and it's here in that we pray. Amen.